had changed it on Thursday and everything. <laughs> Must have left it on. We're glad that you're here this morning, and uh, I'm really excited about being able to to do this for the first time, to be able to, to preach with Ryan and to kind of share what God's put on our heart together, and hopefully we'll be able to, to do that some more. And this morning we are going to be talking about about suffering and trials and things like that. And, and we live in a world where, where, frankly, most people tend to value comfort over character. And so when trials come along, what's the first thing they want to do? They want to get out of there. They don't want to go through those things. And I think that has become true even for Christians in this culture. So many times we try to, to, try to avoid trials. And the suggestion that, that trials might somehow be for our good, we, we kind of run away from that, don't we? We don't really want to go through difficult things in our life. And um, the fact is that right now there are a lot of you who are going through trials. And some of you aren't. Some of you are going through some really good times right now. But here's one thing that I can tell you based on the Word of God is that, that someday you are going to go through those trials. As a matter of fact, the, the Scripture is full of, uh, it tells a completely different story, doesn't it? From the very beginning, you go back to the book of Genesis. And back in the book of Genesis, God's people are taken into slavery in Egypt, and they're there for over 300 years, or over 400 years, actually. And then later on, when, when God forms the nation of Israel, first the, the northern kingdom of Israel, they're, they're defeated by the Assyrians, and they're scattered all around. And later on, the southern kingdom of Judah, they're taken into captivity in Babylon. And you go through the Old Testament, all the Old Testament prophets, almost all of them suffered persecution. They suffered ridicule. I mean, really, someone like Jeremiah, he never even had one convert in all the time that he preached, if you really think about it. And that carries over to the New Testament, too. What happens to the early church? They suffer tremendous persecution. And all the apostles, probably with the exception of John, they die horrible deaths because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And really, if you think about it, the entire gospel rests on the suffering of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? The fact that he was willing to suffer on the cross and die a death for you and for me so that we could have a personal relationship with God. So as we open up the, the book of James this morning, it's not surprising that the author is going to get right to this idea of suffering. And as I said just a moment ago, if you're not going through suffering right now, this, this message is relevant for you because you will be one, one day. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples just a few hours before he went to the cross. In John chapter 16, he said, in the world you will have tribulation. Not might, not maybe. He says, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to be a disciple while you're living in this world, you're going to have those times when you're going to go through difficulties. So for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be looking at this, um, this whole idea of the, the, the gospel or the, the letter that James wrote and see how he deals with some of these things. So let's first kind of get the particulars out of the way. We'll talk about the background and some of the history of this letter a little bit. Um, the very first verse, as is usual with uh, some of these letters, gives us the, the name of the author. Uh, James 1.1 1, 1 reads, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersions, greetings. So what we do know, and let's try to identify who this author is, what we do know is there's at least four people in the, in the New Testament that we know of named James. However, there is general and universal uh, understanding that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is indeed the author of this epistle. 
or letter. We don't use epistle very much here. He's only mentioned twice in the entire, uh, in, the, in the Gospels, and he, but what we do see is he rose to prominence in the early church, particularly in the book of Acts. Um, and then by the time of the Jerusalem Council, almost 20 years after the, the crucifixion, uh, or the resurrection, we see in Acts 15, we see how he kind of rose to a leadership position in the church. And Paul himself actually referred to James as a pillar of the church in his letter to the Galatians. So in addition to, to the external evidence that we see, we also see in the early writings of the church that there's, there's also a lot of internal um, things that tell us who this author might be and supports this as well. So in the opening of his letter, James, if you think about it, doesn't appeal to his audience on the basis of the fact that he is the half-brother of Jesus. I'm sure most of us would have puffed our chest up and I'm the half-brother of Jesus, you need to listen. Nor does he claim his authority on the fact of his leadership position in the church. Instead, he called himself a servant of God, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where his, his passion was. So let's briefly also discuss the audience. Now, we don't want to necessarily get bogged down and go into all the details, but I think it is important to note that the intended audience here uh, were the Jewish Christians that were dispersed and they were scattered. And the reason for that scattering was the tremendous persecution that this church and these people had dealt with. And they had faced that in Jerusalem. Um, based on the letter itself and also from the historical writings that we have available, we do know that this group of people were oppressed and they were likely very poor as well. So the purpose of the letter um, is, is not a, a extremely evident with this introduction, but what we do see is James in this letter, it, he, doesn't, he doesn't attack a lot of doctrine. If you've read this book, he doesn't attack a lot of doctrine in this book. What he does instead is he focuses on how that doctrine ought to impact the way that his audience lived in their daily lives. And I think because of that, it's a great follow-up to our series we just wrapped up in the Proverbs. And, and that's why we've titled this sermon series, Faith Works, and because we're going to focus in on how our faith ought to impact the way that our faith should work in our lives. So with that background in mind, let's go ahead and read the rest of our passage. We'll take, uh, take a look at verse 2 through verse 12. James says, To count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fails, and its beauty perishes." so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So here's our main idea that we're going to try to unpack for you this morning. I find joy in my trials when I embrace them as God's instruments for good. That's really what we talked about with the, with the kids this morning, that God takes and he uses these things for, for good in our lives. And, 
And one of the things we need to do before we really dig into this much deeper is we need to talk for just a moment about the difference between happiness and joy. Notice we didn't say that we find happiness in our trials. We find joy. And there is a difference. Happiness is more of an external thing. It's based on the the circumstances of our life. Whereas joy is more of a choice that I make, that, that, that I can make regardless of what circumstances I'm going through in my life. Probably the best way for us to understand the difference is to look at this familiar verse from Hebrews where it describes the joy of Jesus. It says that we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? For the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I got to tell you, I don't think Jesus was happy about going to the cross. I don't think that at all. He wasn't looking forward to, to dying a horrible death, but he could have joy because he understood what the outcome of that was going to be. He understood that by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our, for our sins, that he was going to be, make it possible for us to be able to have a relationship with God. And so that gave him joy, even in the midst of some really difficult trials. And so the first thing we want to understand as we think about this idea this morning is that experiencing joy in my trials, it's a matter of my mind and not just of my emotions. If we approach our, our, our problems, our difficulties, our valleys in our life, if we approach those just based on our emotions, we're not going to be able to find joy. I can tell you that right now. And so we have to choose to approach them with our mind. And we see that in the very first command that he gives her. He says to count it all joy. And that, that verb count there, it's an interesting word. It can have a lot of different meanings to it. It can mean to consider. It can mean to lead, but originally it came from a word that there was an accounting term. It meant that you would take all the figures and add them up and then come to a conclusion. And that's what James is really instructing us to do here. He says, when you, when you get into these trials, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider everything that's going on, and we're going to talk about how we can do that here in a moment. And then I want you to make a decision to have joy in the midst of those circumstances, regardless of what it is. So it's not just all based on our emotions. So how do I do that? How do I count it all joy? I mean, that sounds like something that's really hard to do. Well, fortunately, James gives us some really practical advice here. And the first thing I have to do if I want to count it all joy is that I need to expect trials. I need to expect them. Notice what he says here. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. What's the next word there? When, when, not if, when you face trials of various kinds. And so what he's saying is that that we ought to expect trials in our lives. We shouldn't be caught off guard when they come. We shouldn't be asking, why me, God? Perhaps we ought to be asking instead, why not me, God? And that, that kind of leads us to the next one here. And the next one we see is that we need to trust that God has my best interests at heart. We need to trust that God has my best interests at heart. And I think, honestly, this is probably one of the most important things we can take from this sermon today. Uh, Because ultimately, the reason that a lot of us don't like to go through trials is because we don't know whether or not God has our back. 
we, we struggle with this idea of we're going through this trial and, and does God really have our best interest at heart? And we struggle with that. Even your most holy Christian will, st- will struggle with that. So James addresses these doubts directly in verse 3. He says that we know that the testing of our faith is intended to produce steadfastness. In other words, God wants to use these trials that come into our lives to help us develop steadfastness in our lives. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit more here in a few minutes of what this idea of steadfastness means and how we can apply that to our lives. But I want to kind of look at this idea just a little bit more. And I want to look at that word trials that's translated trials in the ESV in verse 2. Now, the Greek word uh, for trials is pyrosmos, which is literally translated as testing. And what we'll see next week in verse 13 is that James uses that same exact word, but he translates it tempted in that in that form and the reason that James does that and the reason the translators did this is because in the word in Greek doesn't have like a positive or a negative connotation so instead we have to look at the context in which it's being used to determine the proper translation of that word so in the passage we're looking at this morning the testing is being applied to the purpose and for the purpose of demonstrating the good of the object being tested so let's, get, let's use an example from Peter to understand this a little bit more clearly. Peter uses that same word in his epistle in the first chapter. In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is not tested by fire, may be found to result in a praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the illustration that Paul is using is, is very instructive. He's saying that, that when gold is tested by fire, it's for the purpose of making sure it's actually gold. And so according to both James and Peter, uh, he says that we, we, we learn that God either allows to bring trials into our lives so that we can demonstrate if our faith is really real. He doesn't bring them into our lives to bring us down or to hurt us, but rather to build us up and to help us to see that our faith is genuine. Once again, it seems like God has a, a sense of humor because when I first started working on this uh, this message, probably about three weeks ago, it was, it was really a difficult week, to be real honest. It was really a week. They had trials, in, and they haven't really slowed down much in the, in the next uh, three weeks since then in, in a lot of regards. But, um, but as I was thinking about this idea that Ryan just shared, it, it really dawned on me that, that over the years I've watched a lot of the people that are seated here in, in this building right now. I've watched some others who are no longer with us, and, and I've watched you go through these trials and seeing how God has used them to prove the genuineness of your faith. And that's been a real encouragement to me, to be real honest, over these last uh, few weeks, just to know that, that God is using these trials in my life, not to, to dr- bring me down, but to, to prove the genuineness of my faith. And that ought to be something that's an encouragement to all of us when we go through, through trials. The next, the next principle that we're going to look at here is that we need to allow God's process to run its course. We need to let it run its course. The, the next command that we see here in verse 4 is to let steadfastness have its full effect. And, and as Ryan mentioned just a minute ago, we're going to talk a little bit more about this whole idea of steadfastness right now and, and what it means because I don't think we really truly understand it. The the Greek word here is a, a compound word, upomone, 
and it, it consists of the word upo, which means under, and then the verb meno, which means to remain or abide. So it literally means to remain under or to abide under. And that's not something that we like to do a whole lot, is it? And that's why I'm really glad that the ESV chose to, to translate this particular word as steadfastness here, because I think it, it kind of conveys the, the idea of what this word means a little better than some of the other translations that use the word patience. There's nothing wrong with the word patience, but in our culture, patience is kind of a, a passive thing, isn't it? We kind of picture patience as kind of sitting around waiting for something to happen, but, but steadfastness is completely different than that. It's being willing to, to remain under the trials that God puts us under there and, and be victorious through those trials rather than running away from them. Letting God use them as stepping stones to help us to develop a deeper relationship with him and to to mature in our faith. And we see that in the second part of that verse where he tells us what the purpose of steadfastness is. He says that we're going to do that, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we've run across this idea of perfect before, right? Actually quite a bit recently when we looked at the book of Hebrews. And, And we talked about it there, and the word is teleos, and it's the word it means something like having reached its end or coming to a conclusion or, or being mature or being fully equipped. And what James does here is he combines that with two other phrases. He says that we might be complete and that we might be lacking in nothing. So the idea here is that, that God wants to use these trials so that, that he can change us. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to not short-circuit the process by trying to get out immediately from under those trials. Now, sometimes that's a good thing to do, especially if we brought them upon ourselves by some stupid decisions. I'm not saying you should just stay there. But a lot of times when God brings these things into our life, he does it for for a purpose. And we have to remain there long enough for him to do his work. I remember back when when Mary and I were, uh, we we wanted to have kids. We'd been married for a while, and we decided that we'd love to have some kids. and, And we couldn't get pregnant for a long time. And for over three years, we went to doctors. We went through all these kinds of tests. We took all these different drugs and, and different things. And, and it was a tough time, to be real honest. But at the end of that time, we were blessed with the birth of a beautiful baby girl who's grown up to be a really terrific woman and, and mother and wife. And, and as we look back now, I don't think we'd trade that time for anything because it taught us how we could trust God through the, through the most difficult times in our life. Now, as we've seen already, this, this opening section in James is very instructive and very practical. So the next thing we see here is that we are to pray for wisdom during those times of trials. Most of the time that trials, and we mentioned this earlier, most of the time when these trials come in our lives, the first thing that comes out of our mouth is, why? Why me? Why? But, and, and once we ask that question, a lot of times the next prayer is to remove it, to, to please take this away. Um, and and we, we, we tend to have that, that, that inclination to do that. But as we just saw, letting God and the key to letting God use these trials for us helps us to remain under that difficulty long enough so we can see it through and we can see him accomplish what he wants to accomplish in our lives. So rather than, than be remove, you know, pray for, for somebody that, for God to remove this from us, we ought to be praying for wisdom. And that's what James says here. 
I can remember when we first learned about Gabrielle's disability and how that was going to affect our lives. Thank God we didn't say, God, remove this from us. Because who knows what that would have done. But instead, we just, we trusted in him. And we knew that he was going to get us through it somehow. And a lot of that is really what we what I see in front of me now is, is a lot of you helped us and continue to help us to get through that. So we didn't pray, God, remove this from us. Give us wisdom. Help us to understand how to get through this. Because it is a lifelong trial that we're faced with. And sometimes I wonder, like, why me, God? Why did you give this responsibility to me? Sometimes I feel like I can't handle it, but I know he is in full and complete control. And that gives me joy. It really does. So rather than, than praying, again, we, we see that James says, pray for wisdom. He wants to give you wisdom to get you through this. So instead of those hows and those whats, let's flip those around and, and try to understand, God, what do you, how do you want me to, how is this going to make me be more like Jesus? What can you do or how can you use this and how do I respond to this trial in my life? And really, if you think about it, and I've done this probably recently, verses 5 through 8, a lot of time we use it sometimes out of context. We say, hey, if you want wisdom, pray for wisdom. And obviously that's a great thing to do. But in the context is being used here, notice how and where it's sandwiched in the rest of this text. So we see that it's directly related and directly related to the trials that we face in our lives. That's what James is encouraging us to do when, it, when, it, when he says to pray for wisdom. So in a sense, this is really the key to counting it all joy. And when we pray for wisdom, we're essentially asking God, let us see things through your perspective. Let us see things through your perspective. And that helps us and that provides us really with that encouragement that we need to remain steadfast. Uh, and that really leads us again to the, the last principle, and that's to let God be enough. We ought to let God be enough. Beginning in the second half of verse 5 and going through the end of verse 8, James gives us some instructions on how we're to pray for wisdom, which is nice because sometimes we just don't know how to pray. The first thing we have to do is recognize that it's God's nature to give generously and without reproach. And God delights in answering that prayer because, as we've already touched on, he wants what's best for us. And we really need to have that, that faith. So, But we're also to be warned not to be double-minded when doubting uh, when we're asking for that wisdom, we need to truly believe that he can produce that for us. When trials come, a double-minded man often turns to God as an anchor. But the problem is that he doesn't really trust that God alone is going to be adequate. And unfortunately, what happens then is they usually find other anchors, which is usually their own issues or their own experiences, their own you know resources and strength and abilities. And I'm sure as many of you experience in your lives... That's not enough, and that's not enough for us. You know, that's really true. And I think this, was, this one is probably particularly hard for us as men, right? Because what do we like to do? We like to fix stuff, right? Something comes along, and, and we say we're trusting in God, but we're also like kind of hedging our bets by trying to fix it ourselves if, we, if we're really honest a lot of times. And I know I've certainly done that in my own life. I can remember back in the, the late 1980s, I was working for a land development company, and, and the real estate market was going downhill real fast. And it, it didn't take too much wisdom to see the handwriting on the wall, and I knew that, that pretty soon I was going to be out of a job. So, so uh, I, pr- I prayed about it. I said I was trusting God, but to be real honest, I also kind of took things into my own hands. So without really 
praying about it a whole lot. I went and I applied for a job at another church here in town, a large church, as an executive pastor. And, and I think I was probably pretty well qualified for that job. But, you know, I'm really thankful I didn't get that job because that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't God's timing. And, and, and because I wasn't willing to just let God be enough, I almost made a huge mistake in my life. And had I done that, I'm pretty sure I'd probably still be in that job now, and I wouldn't be here, which is where I believe God wants me to be, where I believe he's wanted me to be for these last 15-plus years that I've been here. And so I know how easy it is to, to say we're trusting God, but also to be double-minded and reach out and grab onto some other things as well. So we need to make sure that we're really just letting God be enough when we go through these trials and not trying to fix them on our own. So we've seen this morning that that I find joy in my trials when I embrace them as God's instrument for good. And right now, as I mentioned earlier, there are probably some of you who are going through trials and valleys in your life. And if you're not, maybe you're going through them with a family member or a friend or a coworker or someone else. And what I want to ask you to do is to, is to pause for just a moment to take a break for just a moment and to to really apply the principles that we've talked about today. Go back and read through your notes and and really try to apply these principles because I'm convinced that if you do that, God can give you joy even in the midst of the trials that you're in right now. If you're not going through something difficult right now, well, I'm thankful for that in your life. But I also know, as we've talked about earlier, and as Jesus promised, there are going to be times when you're going to go through difficulties in your life. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to somehow, like, keep this sermon handy somewhere. I don't know how you want to do it. Make some notes in your Bible. Keep your sermon notes. Bookmark the the sermon online somehow, because someday you are going to go on a trial, through a trial. And hopefully you'll come back to this and let God use his word to speak into your lives so that you can find joy even in the midst of your trials. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, our daughter Pam, she was going through a a pretty rough week. And uh, she had a Bible that her grandmother, Billy, had given to her. And so she pulled out that Bible. And in an act of God's providence, certainly not a coincidence, guess what passage she opened up to? The words that we have studied this morning from James chapter 1. And there in the words of the scripture and in her grandmother's notes, she found joy even in the midst of trials. She was able to choose joy even in the midst of trials. It's my prayer for you that you would be able to do the same. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer that in these moments of trials and these these difficult, difficult times that each and every one of us have or will face, that we do choose joy, and that we do choose to follow you and to trust you in the process, even though it's humanly impossible. So we rely on your spirit, we rely on your word, we rely on your voice to get us through these difficult times. We rely on your, your people the family that you have gifted us with. When we all become brothers and sisters in Christ, we rely on one another and this community of of believers that you have given us to get us through those times. And it is difficult to, to 
accept that it's not a, an if but a when. And it, it is difficult to accept that, you know, and, and we just pray, God, that you help us to understand that very clearly. So that way we do understand the purpose of these trials is to build us up. And we can't do that without your leading. We can't do that without you, Father. So we just pray, God, that you help us to do that, especially when we're having difficult times. And even when we're having good times, remind us of those things because those times are important as well. So help us to do that. Speak to somebody's heart right now, Father, and encourage them with your words. We ask that in Jesus' name.